God, we even need your grace to learn to trust you. That's amazing to me, God, that even that piece we can't figure out how to trust you every day. So not only do we need your grace for salvation, not only do we need your grace just to sustain our very life, God, but we need your grace that we would learn to trust you. Oh, for grace, God, that we would trust you more. Teach us Jesus, precious Jesus, in Colossians chapter 2, as we study your word today, to trust you more. Open our eyes now, open our ears, open our hearts, that we will be transformed by your word today. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. There's a first century uh, Roman poet named Horace. He was probably the greatest poet alive when Jesus was born. And he wrote this, life is largely a matter of expectation. Life is largely a matter of expectation. I've also heard it said before that expectation is the mother of all frustration. That, of course, uh, was said by modern-day poet and, and a great poet in his own right, Antonio Banderas. Not sure if you know Antonio Banderas, the modern-day poet. The reason that both Horace and Antonio Banderas say this kind of stuff about expectations is that expectations matter, don't they? Expectations change the way we budget. They change the way we plan our day. They change the way we study for tests. Expectations impact global economics and politics. If you expect a tasty, a tasty roasted turkey on Thanksgiving Day and someone gives you a turkey made of tofu, a tofurkey, if you will, and, 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 and your expectations aren't met, what do you say to them? No. If you ask for chocolate and somebody gives you some of that garbage that's made of like corn and recycled Starbucks cups, you know what I mean? They say, it's not chocolate, it's mocklate. It's very tasty. What do you say? Get behind me, Satan. I don't need that. I want chocolate. If you ask Amy what we fight about most, she would say misguided or mismatched expectations. If you think of what causes a lot of relational strife in your life, it's mismatched expectations. If you think about what keeps people moving forward during times of difficulty or sickness, it is the expectation that things might get better or be okay. We call that expectation hope. In every area of life, expectations matter, and it's no different when it comes to our walk with Jesus. Because for many of us, difficulty or frustration when it comes to walking with Jesus on a day-in, day-out basis, and by difficulty or frustration, I mean ongoing sin, I mean burnout, I mean depression, anxiety, and frustration. When it comes to our walk with Jesus, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, that comes from mismatched expectations. It's often rooted in a set of expectations that aren't biblical. Because we expect that once we say yes to Jesus, it's now our responsibility to change our character. And since that expectation doesn't match God's expectation, we're going to talk about that here in a minute, it's going to leave us disappointed, derailed, and burned out. So let's take a look at what God has to say about cultivating godly character and make sure that our expectations match his. If you have your Bible, Colossians 2, verse 6. 
There's 66 books in the Bible. They're all put together and they tell one story. Each book of the Bible is divided up into chapters by number. Each chapter is divided up into verses by number. Those chapter markings and verse markings weren't there in the original language, but they are there now and it makes it really, really easy to find Colossians. There's a table of contents in your Bible. You can use that. It's also about 80% of the way through the text. We put the scripture up here on the screen and here we are continuing our series in the book of Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. As you're turning there, I want you to know that Paul's letter to the Colossians kind of takes a turn in chapter 2 verse 6 because Paul starts to talk about behavior. He starts to talk about behavior. He moves from these big truths about God, these big truths about Jesus that we've already covered, and he starts talking about application or implication. He moves from theology to practice, and in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, Paul marks that shift with writing and composition teachers. He's kind of got a big topic sentence at the beginning of the body of his letter that continues all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, and it's that topic sentence that he's going to unpack through uh, two, uh, almost three chapters worth of work uh, right around the the bend here. And so we're going to spend a lot of our time in chapter two, verses six and seven today, because this is the big idea that's kind of the root or the topic sentence of what is the rest of the body of his letter. And, And from the outset here, Paul establishes very crystal clear expectations in terms of the root of godly behavior. Yes, Paul wants to tell us what godly behavior is, but he's especially interested in the motivation and ongoing provision for godly behavior, and and it's not what we might have expected. And that's a really good thing, by the way. So Colossians 2, verse 6, Paul begins the body of his letter this way. He writes, therefore, anytime you see a therefore in the scripture, you ask yourself, what is it? That's perfect. What is it there for? Paul, with that therefore, points back to all the things we've already learned. He says, because Christ created the universe, because all things point to him, because he is the head of the body of the church, because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, for all these reasons, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. That's an interesting word there, received. Interesting word choice. In the original Greek, it's paralambano, and it describes the transaction that happens between a mentor and an apprentice. It's like a mentor teaching an apprentice how to do something, and that apprentice receives that knowledge or that skill or trade from the mentor. That's what Paul means by receive. But Paul says, you haven't received a skill or a trade. What have you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Literally translated in the original language, he says, you have received the Christ Jesus the Lord. Keep reading because we want to know what the expected result of that transaction is. Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk in him. Paul's using walking here as a metaphor for life. It happens all over the scripture. So what he's saying is this. You've received the Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now align your life, align your walk with what you have received. Now, this is a critical point for Pauline theology. This is a critical point for biblical theology. It's up here on the screen, so if you're jotting down notes, jot this down. Here it is. A yes to Jesus always leads to action. 
a yes to Jesus always, every single time leads to action. If you have truly said yes to the invitation of Christ and received him, it will always lead to a change in walk, a change in behavior, a change in attitude. That Greek word for repentance, metanoeo, it means this, a change of mind that always leads to a change in action. So let's use Paul's language here. If a mechanic receives knowledge, a younger mechanic receives knowledge from an older mechanic, and they get to the end of that process, and the younger mechanic says, I know how a transmission works. That's not the end game, is it? What's the end game? Fix the transmission. Do something. A surgeon goes to school in order to do surgery. Lawyers go to school so they can practice law. Pilots learn so they can fly. Plumbers learn so they can plumb something. All right, so just as as an apprentice learns a skill from a mentor and puts it into practice, Paul is saying this, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, now walk in him. James, Jesus' brother, would say it a lot more bluntly in his letter to the church. He would say what? Faith without works is dead. Here's what Paul says, you have your theology right, you have your truth right, you may have received Christ Jesus the Lord, but if it doesn't change you, if it doesn't impact the way you behave and think, the impact the way you walk, you're missing the point. You may be able to cite scripture passages about missions, but if you're not on mission, you're missing the point. You may be able to defend defend creationism, but if you are not in constant contact in relationship with the creator himself, and that's changing you, then you're missing the point. You may be able to recite the Lord's Prayer, but if you're not in communion with God through prayer, then you're missing the point. You've received Christ, Paul says, good. Now walk. Align your life with what you have received because a yes to Jesus always leads to action. Now, most of us, check this out now, most of us, Christians or not, even if you're not a person of faith, you would go, you know what, I think I would agree with that. Like, a Christian should behave like Christ. That just makes sense. A Christian should do what the Bible says. They don't always, but they should, right? So I would affirm that. Paul would affirm that a Christ follower should act like Christ. But right from the outset here, as Paul gets to talking about behavior, he is going to completely blow up our expectations in terms not of what that behavior is, but in terms of how we do it. Not in terms of, because 90% of the times, like somebody asks you, like, what's the Christian thing to do in this? What's the biblical thing to do in this situation? I think 90% of the time we would go, you know what? I could probably take a pretty good guess because I kind of have an idea what the Bible says. I kind of have an idea of what God says. Like, you know, my neighbor did something. Should I, you know, should I blow up my neighbor's lawn or should I be kind to them? I would probably be kind to them. I think that's probably what the Bible says. 90% of the time we, we get that. We don't always do it because it's hard sometimes, but we get that. What we don't get, the point we don't understand sometimes, is to how that behavior gets formed in us, how we are actually changed. So look at what Paul says, because this is what he wants to be really clear about. Keep reading verse 7. 
He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Paul uses two metaphors here to help us understand what's going on as godly behavior is cultivated in us. The first is horticultural and the second is architectural. The first is this. He says that you are rooted. You are rooted. Like a plant is rooted in soil, like a branch is connected to a tree. That's not my metaphor, by the way. That's Jesus's metaphor. So we are rooted in him. Then he says we're built, being built up. Like an architect constructs a building, so we are being constructed. And here is the critical caveat. Here's the language that we don't want to miss. It's just a real quick blip on the screen in this sentence anyway. But if you pay attention to all of that first paragraph of text in the body of Paul's letter, here's the critical phase. Where are we rooted? Better yet, in whom are we rooted? Who is the foundation of the building and who is doing the work? Right up there on the screen, say it with me. In him. Do you see it? In him. Over the next 10 verses, you'll see Paul use that little phrase, in him or with him, nine times. We're going to read them all today. You'll see him, like Ferris Bueller once said, nine times. Nine. Over 10 verses. You think it matters to him? Of course it does. You bet it does. It matters where we are rooted or whom is doing the constructing. Paul wants us to know this. If you've been tracking with us through this whole series of Colossians, here's what Paul wants us to know. Christ designed, orchestrated, executed, and now sustains the universe, the church, and what? Our salvation. And they're all for his glory. They're all to give him attention. So now, listen, Paul starts to talk about our walk, our Christian behavior, and he says it's the same way. The likeness of Christ is formed in us for you, for you theologians. Our sanctification is rooted in, built up by, designed, orchestrated, executed, and sustained in him. And it's all for his glory. We're going to talk about what this means. We're going to unpack it a little bit this morning, but let's say it a couple of different ways so we understand a fruit doesn't grow itself. A tree with strong roots grows fruit. A building doesn't build itself. An architect designs and constructs a building. So when it comes to our sanctification, when it comes to godly behavior, when it comes to the likeness of Christ being formed in us, we are rooted in him and he is doing the constructing, he is doing the building. And I want you to know that this is not a new concept. This is exactly what Jesus said to us in John 15, 5, when it comes to bearing fruit for him. Listen to what Jesus says. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Say it with me. Nothing. I looked that word nothing up in the original language, the Greek, that your Bible is written in. You don't, you don't know what it means? Nothing. And it's interesting. It's interesting because it carries with it this implication of nothing. 
that's what you can do apart from Christ, apart from being rooted in him, apart from being built up in him, we cannot bear fruit. So let me get back to our expectations because, because here's where I think the meat hits the grinder, so to speak. We have this misguided expectation that as a Christian, it is my obligation or my responsibility to modify my behavior so it's more like Jesus' behavior. I've now said yes to Jesus, and when I did that, I took upon myself all the responsibility of becoming more like Jesus. That's our expectation. For those of you who live that way, I've been in your shoes before, and there are days and moments where I live that way. I would ask you this simple question. Aren't you tired? Doesn't that get fatiguing? This is why Jesus came along and he said to people like you and me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Now check this out. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. We take that responsibility upon ourselves to grow fruit, to to exhibit godly behavior, And Paul comes along and says, no, 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 rooted in him, being built up by him, in him. He blows up our expectation. Here's the reality. Jesus owns the responsibility of making me more like him. He owns that responsibility. And his work begins in my heart. So now watch this, because here's the critical change. Rather now than obligation or burden or chore, or responsibility, rather than spinning my wheels to become more like Jesus, this is what happens. Now it's my joy to surrender to Christ's transforming power at work in me. Do you see the shift? Do you see the change? Do you see the difference there between I am going to will myself to bear fruit. I'm going to will myself to be more like Jesus. I'm going to will myself to exhibit godly character. And it becomes an obligation. It becomes a chore. And then burnout and despair and frustration is the result. This is what we talked about, expectations at the beginning. This is not the invitation of the gospel when it comes to sanctification and godly behavior in your life. The invitation is this. Now it's my joy to submit and surrender to Christ's transforming power at work in me. Why does this matter? Listen close, because it matters a ton. If it's up to me to behave like Jesus, are you ever going to succeed? Nope. (laughs) No. If it's up to me to behave like Jesus, and I think I've accomplished it, what happens? Pat myself on the back, right? Is that biblical? No. If it's up to me to behave like Jesus and I always fail or I'm always discouraged, I'm going to get weary and give up. Listen close. If it's up to Jesus to change me, if the responsibility is on his shoulders and it's just my job to surrender to his will in my life, then who gets the glory as I become more like Jesus, me or him? Him. If it's up to Jesus to change me and it's just my job to surrender to him and if things get difficult, who gets weary and tired and frustrated, me or him? Him. It's his responsibility. But check this out. The Bible says he never gets weary or tired. 
Even youths grow weary or tired, but Jesus never does. If it's up to Jesus to change me, I'll never make it. Or if it's up to me to change me, I'll never make it. But if it's up to Jesus to change me, then he who began a good work in me will most certainly complete it according to Philippians 1. Once my expectations of cultivating godly character align with God's expectations, I'm not striving, I'm not hustling, rather I'm living in humility, I'm living in joyful surrender, I'm living in abundant life, and I surrender to Christ's transforming power in me. What I have received in the Christ Jesus the Lord, now my walk aligns with him as I am rooted and built up and established in him. Now, Paul says that my rootedness in Christ, my surrendering to him, and Christ's work of building up his likeness in me should show itself. Why? Because a yes to Jesus always leads to action. It always leads to change. It always leads to different behavior, different attitudes. So Paul says, this rootedness in Christ being built up in him, what you've received, it's going to show itself in a few different ways. And we're going to talk about four of them because that's what he talks about right now. But it's critical. Listen close. These aren't just evidences of being rooted in Christ. This isn't just the outcome of being rooted in Christ, but they're also a little bit of a catalyst. Not just a little bit, they're catalysts for growing deeper roots in Christ. They are the means by which we plant our roots deeper in him such that we bear more fruit. It's a cycle. So, so I, I, I was trying to think of an illustration. Let's, let's put it this way. When you exercise, what chemical does it release to your brain? Endorphins, you know that? And what do endorphins do? They make you want to exercise more. And then your body gets healthier, and it's a vicious cycle where you have to exercise all the time. So don't exercise. That's the point of the message today. Don't ever exercise. No, that's not the, that's not the point. The point is this. As we exercise, it releases endorphins to our brain, and those endorphins make us want to exercise more. And every time we do that, our body gets healthier. So, as we are rooted in Christ and we exhibit godly behavior, as we exhibit godly behavior, it, 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 it deepens our roots in him and causes us to exhibit more godly behavior, which deepen our roots in him, and we grow and are rooted in and are built up in Christ. And Paul talks about four heart postures that are both catalysts for and evidence of rootedness in Christ. Let's start in verse 7. Pick up the text in verse 7. Here's what Paul writes. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in church attendance, abounding in Bible knowledge, abounding in what? Thanksgiving. Here's the first catalyst for, here's the first evidence of a heart that is transformed, rooted in, and being built up in Christ. Paul says this, he says, walk in gratitude. Walk in gratitude. I personally, this is me, I find it fascinating that the first behavior marker that Paul mentions in Colossians, the first evidence of and the first catalyst for a healthy walk with Jesus is thankfulness, gratitude. For Paul, gratitude is a litmus test for spiritual health. 
Not knowledge, and that's a good thing. Paul likes that. Not morality. Paul likes that. Not ability to defend the gospel. Paul likes that. Not church attendance. Paul likes that. He likes all those things. Thankfulness, gratitude is the very first thing that Paul mentions as a litmus test and an evidence for and a catalyst for walking in Christ and being rooted in Christ. People walk around all the time asking what the will of God is for their life. I just wonder how to, how to discover the will of God for my life. What's the will of God for my life? You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Look up here on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. <laughs> Pretty clear that we would give thanks, that we would be people who walk in gratitude because we are rooted in Christ. I mean, I started just jotting things down this week, things that I'm thankful for, things that I'm grateful for. Here's just one that I came up with. Maybe this will help you in terms of being grateful to God on a daily basis. More than 10% of the world's population doesn't have access to clean water. More than 10%. You can go in our washrooms after service if you want to. You can get two kinds, hot and cold. And more than 10% doesn't have any at all. More than 25% of the world's population doesn't have access to proper sanitation. You can also avail yourself of proper sanitation if you want to here in our washrooms after the service. Men and women of God, we have plenty to be thankful for. If you run out of things to be thankful for, go back through Colossians and figure out that we were once at war with God, now we're reconciled. We were once aimless and now we're set aside for God's purpose. We were once alienated from God. Now we can waltz right into the very holy place where he dwells and have a little chit-chat. I don't mean to be irreverent, but that's exactly what Hebrews 10 says. We can go into the holy place now with confidence. We can be grateful, abounding in thankfulness. Our call is to walk in gratitude. Number two, in terms of a catalyst for and also the evidence of rootedness in Christ, being built up in him, Christ transforming power at work in you. Here it is, number two, walk in truth. Walk in truth. Look at verse eight. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. He's not talking about, like, don't take a philosophy course at school. That's not what he's talking about. Philosophy meant something totally different 2,000 years ago. So we've got to be careful that we're not anachronistic about this word philosophy and try to export modern understanding of it back 2,000 years ago. This kind of encapsulated all pagan uh, philosophies and any other religion and just kind of a broad range of false teaching. Says, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by those things and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you wonder what that means, go back and listen to a message from three weeks ago. We've already talked about it. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Here's the thing. Paul, next week, starting in verse 16, is going to get really specific about what those human traditions are, what that empty deceit is, and the truth that we need to walk in. So, so we're just going to say one quick thing today about walking in truth, and then we're going to spend our entire time next week, 40 minutes, talking about walking in truth, because that's what Paul does in verse 16. Here's the one thing we're going to say. If you have a smartphone, you have more access to the truth of God's word and to other very smart people talking about God's word than just about any believer on the planet from 60 years ago. You, you, have, you have far, 
far more information than any believer on the planet 150 years ago, and the church has known the Bible better than most of us do for the last 2,000 years, even with limited access to it. Men and women of God, the encouragement is avail yourself of the truth so that you can identify falsehood and so that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So walk in truth. We'll spend all of our time there next week. Keep reading, verse 11. Paul says, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is, this, this two verses here are so, so timely. Here's why Paul is talking about circumcision so much in those couple of verses, and I need you to stick with me because this is critical. Circumcision was God's chosen method of identifying his first covenant community. Thousands of years ago, this is how God identified the nation of Israel with circumcision. He could have chosen a decoder ring or a secret handshake, but he didn't. He chose circumcision, and no one argued with him because he's God. But what was once supposed to be kind of a marker that set his people apart became a reason for spiritual pride. It became a reason for elitism. It it became a reason for even racism. So God's people, who were supposed to be the voice of God to the nations, rather than calling themselves the people of God, they began to call themselves the circumcision. In other words, we're better than you. And they were supposed to be a voice of grace to those nations, but they, but they considered themselves to be above and set apart, not in a good way, in a bad way, from those nations. And, the, and a dividing wall of hostility called racism grew between God's people and the nations around them that they were supposed to be God's voice to. So and then Paul comes along in the New Testament, and remember, he is a part of the circumcision. He is a member of that group of people, that national group and that religious group. And he comes along, he says, no, 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 no. You missed the whole point of that thing. This circumcision thing is a circumcision of the heart. It's a spiritual identification. That other thing was just an external thing. In fact, Paul goes so far in Galatians 5 to say this. If you're so hung up on this circumcision thing, just go the whole way and emasculate yourself if you're excited about it. Go for it. People get on me for like aggressive preaching sometimes. I'm like, I've never said that to anybody. So Paul did. And and since, here, check this out. Since circumcision, since identification with the body of Christ, since identification with God and with the family of God is a matter of the heart, then listen, anyone can carry the identifying mark of being a child of God. Look look what Paul says in verse 11. He says this. He says, also you were circumcised. And some of those people that he's talking to weren't actually circumcised. And so they're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, how did that happen? And do I have an appointment or something coming up? No, Paul says this. 
You now share in the circumcision not made by hands, but you share in Christ's circumcision, not his actual circumcision, but you, you share in Christ's identity. You are a co-heir with him. You've been grafted into the family of God. You now carry that identifying mark of being a child of God in your heart. And check this out. Everyone is invited... No one is excluded, not because of background, not because of nationality, not because of gender, not because of race, not because of cultural heritage, not because of language, age, or ability level. All are welcome in the family of God. So here's what this means for us when it comes to being rooted in and built up in Christ. When it comes to the evidence for a life that is growing deeper roots in Christ. And when it comes to even a catalyst for growing in Christ more every day, Paul says this, walk in unity. Walk in unity. If Christ welcomed all, then you welcome all. If Christ didn't put up with racial division, then you don't put up with it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers in him who have been grafted into this covenant community, not based on background or cultural identity or ethnic identity or language, I just want to tell you that we, as the church, should be on the forefront of modeling racial reconciliation to the world around us. We should be walking in unity. Now look, I know we're different. I know you look around, especially this place, and you realize that we are different. Just by way of show of hands, how many of you were born outside of Canada? Shoot shoot your hand up. Cool. Me too. Me too. I'm American. (laughs) So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Seriously, close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Picture one word in your head that comes to mind when you think American? One word. One word. Stereotype that comes to, comes to Americans. Now everybody look up at me. And I want you all on three to say that word out loud. You ready? Here we go. Don't be afraid now. It's a safe place. I'm American. People sitting next to you are American. If they're really American, they're probably carrying a weapon. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Totally kidding. All right, you're going to say that word out loud on three. Ready? One, two, three. Wow. You're a little, little bolder than I thought you'd be. Honestly, uh, this illustration's not going to work now. Look, we're different, aren't we? We're different. We have things that come along with cultural identity and racial identity. I have, I have my friends in the U.S. all the time ask me about my Canadian like living experience. You know, I've been here for a couple years now. I love it in Canada. And like, I've got to the point now where I just mess with them, right? It's like, oh, I love Canada. I, you know, I, the canoe to work is pretty long. Um, <laughs> I have to portage four times, so it's difficult. You know, that's, I, I tell them that everything is socialized here. Healthcare, socialized, music, clothes. Everybody gets the same clothes, you know. Patios are socialized. Everybody just has to build the same patio. I tell them there are moose everywhere. Like, we got moose on the subways. We got moose on TTC. We got, you know, there's a moose living in my basement. just renting it out because the cost of housing is so high. You know, there's moose everywhere. This is just normal. We put maple syrup on everything. And all my American friends are like, wow, that sounds really interesting. You know, I'm like, 
It's not true. <laughs> it's fun to laugh about our differences, to be honest with you, isn't it? I mean, we're just different. We come from different places. We have different upbringings. We have different backgrounds. We have different ethnic identities. But I just want you to be, I want you to be really, really clear here. I come from a country, the U.S. of A, where racial tension runs really hot right now if you're watching the news. Really hot. Some of you, some of you come from a country that makes U.S. racial tension look like a game show. <laughs> Some of you come from places where people are buttonheads all the time. Some of you have had even friends or family members killed in wars that are based in racial tension. And we wonder how to fix it. And we try peace talks and we try cultural awareness and we try legislation. All those things are good. But then race riots happen in the U.S. and wars all over the world. And I'll just tell you the truth, even unspoken racial divisions here in the great country of Canada, aren't there? We're, we're, we're cool, you know. We got the mosaic thing going on and we treat each other with kindness most of the time. I mean, I was, I was on the 404, this was a couple months ago, I was driving down the 404 and somebody cut me off. And I, I literally out loud in the car with Amy, I said, foreign drivers. Amy looked at me and says, you are one. <laughs> like, you're a foreign driver. It's like, well, I mean, other foreigners, not, not real foreigners. We're at home anywhere, Americans, right? <laughs> to our fault, probably. You know, we, we, have these, we have these assumptions about how people live or what their education is or their background is. Rodney King in the U.S., if you follow the race riots that happened uh, 20, 25 years ago in the, in the U.S., famously asked, can't we all just get along, right? You remember that? Apparently not. Apparently we can't. Like in our own strength, left to ourselves, we can't get along. But look, Jesus comes in and he breaks down any divisions that might have existed between us before by grafting us all into the same covenant, by marking us all as children of God, each and every one of us. So now no matter what your background is, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your age is, we are all unified as one part or one family of God. Look at the way Paul says it in Ephesians 2. He says, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about racial reconciliation there. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Men and women of God, the answer to racial equality and unity of heart and spirit is not cultural awareness, though that's good. It's not legislation and public policy, though that's good. The answer to racial reconciliation is that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Greek, slave and free, man and woman, and now all are welcome to come and receive the grace of Christ. Here's the deal. We're not going to solve racial strife today, i just tell you that, especially after what you just said about Americans. But we can, as a church, walk in Unity as evidence of our common reconciliation in Christ. Let's conclude this way, verse 13. Paul says, In you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were once dead in that, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that record of debt uh, translated from original Greek is like an IOU. He canceled that IOU that we had that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the only place in the scripture where uh, the scripture uses that kind of language. And I love it. Like, I, I love when people win and they gloat. I love that. Jesus, those authorities, those rulers, that which stood against us, not just in those authorities in spiritual realms, in heavenly realms, but also the debt that we owed God. He put it to open shame. This was not a private victory for Jesus. This was a public victory for Jesus when he canceled that record of debt. So here's how we'll conclude. Walk in victory. Walk in victory. Jesus has won, and it's been very, very public. He now parades his enemies that are conquered in front of you and me. And as we walk in victory, it's an evidence for a life that's rooted in Christ, and it drives our roots deeper into Christ. Here's what this means, believers in Christ, and, and we'll, we'll conclude here. You think you have a problem or issue that God can't fix? You think you have a relationship that he can't mend? How about a sickness that he can't cure? A friend he can't save, a sin he can't forgive, a wound he can't heal, a mistake he can't redeem? Think again. Because not only has he disarmed anything that might stand against your pursuit of God and your victory in Christ, but he has put them to open shame. The victory is won and everybody knows it. So let's walk in victory and live that way. But here's the deal. When it comes to victory, when it comes to unity, when it comes to these evidences of being rooted in Christ, here's the, here's the, here's the bottom line truth today. You and I, we cannot do it on our own. It's the responsibility of Jesus as we surrender to him as we submit to him, as we lay down our lives before him again in humility and joyful surrender, and he does his work in us. What we have received, the Christ Jesus the Lord, we are now rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That's why we sing, it's so sweet to trust in Jesus. Pray with me. God, would you bring us to the point of resting in you? Would you bring us to the point of trusting in you? Would you take away that propensity that we have to strive, to exhaust our own efforts, to cultivate godly character in ourselves? Rather, God, would you call us into a trust relationship with you whereby we just simply surrender and you do the work. And God, as you do that, Jesus, as you do that, 
let that evidence in our own lives be unity as a body, that we would walk in truth, that we would walk in gratitude, and that we would walk in victory because of who you are and what you've done and what you're still doing in each of us. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience with us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you never grow weak or weary and that you will complete the good work you began in us. In Christ's name.